Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com where you will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. What we are going to discuss on this episode is a little bit of a departure from what we typically cover on Business Creators Radio Show. That being said, I am very excited to bring this to you because it does speak to something that we need to be cognizant of as business creators, which is having a full awareness of understanding our cash flow, understanding how taxation works, and making sure that we have all the information that we need in front of us so that we can ourselves make informed decisions about how to do things like tax planning, revenue planning, and how to report our profits when it comes time to do your taxes. No matter what time of year it is, you're probably somewhere in or near a tax season, particularly as a business creator, especially for those of us with the simple setups that file our 941s every quarter. Always something looming over my head. Today, to help guide us through this topic, we have with us Kelly Alexander, who is the founder of the Great American Tax Remedy, which empowers American taxpayers like you to liberate themselves from federal and state income taxes through powerful, little-known banking laws that anyone legally working in the USA can leverage. It's truly possible and legal to pay little or zero income tax, and Kelly shows us how. I will say that, obviously, the Business Creators Radio Show, we're not any sort of certified portal of financial advice. I give this disclaimer every time we have something about taxation or anything about cash flow on our show. That being said, I do encourage you to open your mind, open your ears, and open your possibility to what you're about to hear, as it may help you in some way gain more from the fruits of your work as a business creator. With that being said, Kelly Alexander, come on in. The weather's fine. All right. Thank you so much, Adam. I'm so happy to be talking with you today. Oh, we are going to have some fun with this one. Oh, yes, we are. Before we do that, What I want to do is right now, I imagine we have some people who are leaning in. They're binging the Yahoo out of the Googles and asking the internet, who is Kelly Alexander? What is mytaxremedy.com? So what we'd like to do is take a step back and ask you to share a bit more about your journey that's brought you to where you are serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community market and audience. All right. I'd be more than happy to do that. So about uh, 12 years ago, give or take a little, I was at that time learning about uh, trading in the stock market and doing real estate investments and starting to become more and more aware of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, since they make their uh, quarterly announcement meetings periodically, which affects the stock market very strongly. 
And as I came to understand it a little bit better and a little bit better, I did more and more research on it and I uncovered some really uh, interesting things about it. Uh, Federal Reserve, um, contrary to its name, is not actually a federal agency. It's a privately held corporation. And um, anyway, I just started just getting these inklings of um, questions, really, about what's really going on behind the scenes. And that put me on a path uh, to doing legal research for at least a decade now. Um, and then going back even further, I remember my very first job at age 16 at a fast food restaurant being given a, a form, W-4 form. And it asks on there, you know, if you have dependents and, you know, whatever exemptions you qualify for. And there was a statement on there that said, if you owed no income taxes last year and expect to owe no income taxes this year, then you can claim exempt from withholdings. And I saw that and I thought, wow, this wouldn't be here if there wasn't a way to be exempt. And it was kind of like the grain of sand in the oyster that was niggling at me for, I don't know, 30 some years Man. before I actually started digging into the subject. And so, you know, fast forward 30 years, I started this legal research and I started becoming aware of all these different nuances and uh, contradictions and uh, just things about the Federal Reserve and how our money system works and how money actually gets issued into the economy and uh, things about the national debt. And so uh, through that process, I began networking with other people, also doing research. And uh, in 2008, I learned about some exotic tax strategy that I applied to my 2008 tax return. And it yielded a $50,000 refund to me Whoa. and my husband. And it was not based on money that I had paid in from withholdings. It was based on my banking activity. And it turned out that that method, while it had a few merits to it as a whole package, it was flawed. And so I got into the crosshairs of the IRS as a result, and I was, I needed to pay that money back and, you know, went, went through some very difficult and rough times. And I just knew in my gut that there was something about the tax system that was yet for me to uncover um, that would explain a lot of things. And I, I just had this sense that there, there had to be some kind of a remedy that's not spoken of. And yeah. so little by little, I, I found it. I just found it. And it had to do with understanding the banking laws of our country and the Federal Reserve and the relationship between those and our Congress and the IRS. And so that's what I'm gonna delve into with all of you today and um, show you that there is um, an answer to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve yeah. Act was passed in 1913, which means that from the beginning of our country, 
uh, we did not have an income tax. There were a few exceptions throughout the 1800s, uh, during the Civil War era. Uh, President Lincoln borrowed money for the war effort, and so that created a short-term income tax to pay those war debts back. And there's been a tug of war, actually, since the founding of our nation between the banking system that was already established in Europe and it wanting to get a foothold here in America. So we have had some short-term rounds of income taxes and revenue bureaus even throughout the 1800s, but 1913 is when it became firmly planted in our, into our system. And that's when our Congress basically delegated its authority to issue money directly into our economy. Yeah. So when the Congress issues the money, <clears throat> it's based on the reflection of the goods and services that citizens generate so that commerce can continually expand and you know, growth and all of that. When that role was delegated to the Federal Reserve, then it, it caused an obligation on the U.S. government to pay back all of that money that's now being issued into the system. So that is primarily how our national debt got underway, is now owing the Federal Reserve principal plus interest on a growing debt. When the Congress issues the money, there is no debt obligation to pay it back because it's strictly a reflection of the act the economic activity of the country it doesn't mean yeah. that the government can't enter into loans with other nations and so forth but in general that's how it was designed to work by our founding fathers they knew well the pitfalls of a central banking system and were vehement about setting up the new government without it correct correct now i'm, I'm looking even as we speak, I was doing a little binging the Yahoo, all the Googles myself, and I found this web page that shows pictures of $10 bills issued by the United States just between the years 1901 and 1912. And the variants of the design of all these bills, like there's one that actually has a picture of a buffalo on it. There's another one that specifically indicates that it is backed by gold coin and has gold stamping and markings on it. Right. Then there are, there are notes issued by banks such as Lebanon, Green Bay, Buffalo, New York, Wood River, which I think is in New Jersey, if I remember correctly. And it shows the evolution of the different seals they put on it, the language, the photographs, and things like that. I mean, go back to 1908, and today we all associate Alexander Hamilton as being on the $10 bill. In right. 1908, it could have been, a, or even between 1900 and 1912, it could have been a picture of a buffalo. It could have been a picture of one of our founding fathers, other than Alexander Hamilton. It could have been a picture of the recently assassinated President William McKinley. It could have been a picture of an angel. But what none of these bills, or actually there are two things that these bills that I'm looking at anyway have in common. All of them have on them 
the words national currency somewhere in the design. And the designs do vary depending on who the issuer was and what is indicated as the backer, whether it's silver or gold or whatever it is. Right. And none of them say Federal Reserve note. That's correct. And that's because the Federal Reserve Act was not passed until 1913. Correct. I just wanted to, I just wanted to illustrate that for anybody who wants to do some fact checking, I just wanted to give them sort of a, at least a springboard to research this for themselves. Because I imagine many of our listeners hearing what you have to say are going to want to do some due diligence on this before they decide what they're going to do with the information. This is somewhat sure. revolutionary. This is a lot different than they're hearing from their tax advisor or their tax planner. So we want to give them all the information we can. Great. That's now great. you have a zillion things to share with us, Kelly, and I'm mostly gonna turn this over to you in just a moment, but I wanna share an anecdote that just illustrates, for me anyway, some of the miseducation and misinformation out there. So right. let, me, let me ask you a question. This does relate somewhat to current events. Is a candidate for president of the United States obligated to reveal their tax returns? No, they are not. Exactly. Uh do you, know where that, do you know where the idea of a presidential candidate releasing their tax returns comes from? Actually, I do not know the origin of that. Um... Oh, you're going to love this. You're going to love this. In 1952, who was the vice president nominee for the Republican Party? I'll save you time. Richard Nixon. Yeah. Uh, okay. And Nixon was accused of having the slush fund that was being used for various forms of bribery and influence peddling. And he gave what is now known as the checkers speech, where he basically said to translate into 2020 terms, come at me, bro, if you think you got some, but I'm squeaky clean. And he announced that he would reveal his tax returns, which would prove that he was actually a man of very modest means. And aside from Checkers the dog and Pat's proper cloth coat, they really didn't have much in assets. Okay. Uh, then, the, then the candidates on the Democratic ticket were also, I can't remember if it was in response to Nixon calling on them to do so, or if they had decided to do it independently, they released their tax returns. But I know that the idea of the Democrats releasing their tax returns somehow came up within the context of the Checkers speech. Well, that's time, fine. Yeah, it's voluntary. Exactly, exactly. Now, here's the point. Here's the point I'm getting at. The, the Republican presidential candidate, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and his people were watching the checkers speech because Eisenhower was still deciding whether or not he was going to throw Nixon off the ticket. And after Nixon gave the checkers speech and the room where Eisenhower and his people were, everybody in the room stood up and cheered. They thought that Nixon's speech was amazing. They thought he totally vindicated himself. Uh, it was awesome. He was clean. And now we could go ahead with the campaign. There was only one person in the room who was mad. Okay. That would have been Dwight D. Eisenhower himself. While everybody else was cheering, eventually somebody noticed that Eisenhower's face had turned crimson red. And he took his pencil, according to one account, and jabbed it so hard into his notepad that he was taking notes on it that it went through. And then he stood up, went into the other room, and slammed the door behind him so hard it almost fell off the hinges. Wow. Here's the reason why. Eisenhower himself 
banking on the fame that he had achieved as Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in World War II, had gone on in the subsequent years between 1945 to 1952 to do very well for himself. He published an autobiography, and he received royalties and payments in the seven figures on that, made him a very wealthy man by 1940 standards. He was very highly paid to do speeches and honorariums. He earned money as president of Columbia University and through other forms of consulting that he did for private and public organizations. So Eisenhower, seeing that he would now have to reveal his tax returns in the eyes of people who either just didn't understand taxation for the rich or in the hands of the media looking to create a narrative, would paint him as basically a selfish crook who uses fame to get rich. Uh. And it would therefore discourage anybody who became wealthy and successful and accomplished in America from being willing to stand up public office because they would have to deal with a bunch of stupid questions from people who didn't know any better. Right. And therefore would discourage mm -hmm. some of the best and brightest from standing up and being willing to serve their country in that way. Makes sense. Yeah. So I just wanted to put that out there because... I wanted people to understand the irony that it was Richard Nixon that spearheaded this whole thing about presidential candidates releasing their tax returns. Uh, he uh, he might have done a couple things during Watergate, but on uh, the on the slush fund thing, Tricky Dick was squeaky clean on that one, and yeah. it was his idea that everybody should show their tax returns. Isn't that kind of funny when you look at history now? And so when you see all these people saying to certain folks who are in politics today i want to see your tax returns yeah like you know what to look for well right i mean the tax code is eighty-three thousand pages and yeah. going and changing all the time the best cpa on the planet cannot possibly master that much tax code cpas have to specialize in different segments of the tax code to serve whatever their you know client tell base happens to be yeah i've had to say i've had the same cpa for 17 years he's a great guy i hope he is immortal and outlives me because i don't ever want to have to change he's that good uh -huh. that being said i know full well that if i were to take the work that he does for me and show it to five other cpas they would all tell me that he was doing it wrong and he was basically cheating me out of opportunities to get deductions and refunds. Yes. And they would all have five different reasons why. And they would all have five different examples of how they would have filed my taxes if I had given it to them instead. Which goes back to your point that there are so many volumes of regulations, it's impossible for one person or one entity to even understand them all, much less us have really a uniform way of acting upon them. Right, and it's called tax code. Yes. I think that's a key word. It's written in such uh, obfuscated, d you know, confusing, you know, undefined terminology, languaging, that, yeah, it's no wonder there's multiple, multiple interpretations of how to apply it. Right. And then when you get into something that is of concern to many of our listeners, which is taxation strategies for the rich, that's a lot different than taxation strategies for the middle class or taxation strategies Absolutely. for uh, yeah. people under a certain income bracket. And then there's also a big difference between being a W-2 employee, being a 1099 self-employed, and being the owner of a corporation that, go that governs 
work right. being done. Uh, right. Every year, I have a couple clients of mine that want to send me 1099 forms. And they insist that they have to send 1099 forms. And I explain to them again, you are never working with me. You're hiring the services of my company. Therefore, there's no person involved. You don't have to send me a 1099. And they wouldn't, they'll insist. And, I'll, and, uh, and if they ask for my social security number, I'll say, no, it's none of your business. I won't give it to you. Yeah, well, those, but, those right. information returns, they're not yeah. fined by any way. Yeah. There's no under penalty of perjury. Yeah. It, it's someone's interpretation or exactly. opinion. That's yeah. it. So, so what I typically do, and this is the advice I was given by a couple folks, is if they want my company's tax ID number, well, yeah, they can have that because, I mean, it, they have, since they're doing, doing business with the company, uh, they have a reasonable expectation of knowing who they're giving tens of thousands of dollars a year of their money to. That's sure. fine because you, yeah. can get the, you can get the tax ID from Verizon if you want it. I mean, uh, right. it's not a big deal. But I also tell them, go ahead and mail your 1099 so it fulfills what your CPA is advising you to do. I'm letting you know the second I receive it, I'm going to throw it in a shredder. But if it fix, makes you feel better to document that you mailed it to me, go right ahead. Yes. Well, you, there, you can amend those uh, 1099s that you receive. Oh, really? If you look at the top of them, there's two boxes. One says voided, one says amended or corrected. Okay. And uh, depending on the situation, you just um, resubmit a, a correct version of what you received. Okay. Wow. Or void it altogether. So yeah, it's yeah. right at the top. You'll see. You have that option because. Well, I know I'm. I know I'm getting a couple, so I'll take a look as soon as I receive them. Okay. Great. So now I'm getting curious. And I said I wanted to tell, have a little bit of a story time just to put a bit of a context yes. for something that's real world to help people understand that there really is not one right answer to a lot of this stuff. And therefore, yes. what you have to say is worth consideration. Tell us what is this great American tax remedy of which you're the founder and how does it help people legally pay less income tax. I understand you're a bit cutting edge here, and this is another view on the tax code. Let's hear it. All right. So the primary thing that I uncovered is that although our Congress delegated its authority to the Federal Reserve to issue the money into our economy, it did not uh, remove that authority from itself. Right. And so <clears throat> while we all have... Federal Reserve notes in our wallet, and that's what we see day in and day out. There is another currency that is in circulation that we are, as citizens, are able to utilize, and that would be United States notes. That's the current form of the money that Congress can issue. So, because money issued by our Congress does not create an obligation on the U.S. government to pay it back, it, it, that currency is tax exempt. So what I do is I teach people how to redeem or exchange their Federal Reserve note money for this other currency. Yeah. And the umbrella term for the, the monies that the Congress issues is called lawful money. 
So at the beginning of our show today, when you were talking about these $10 bills that you saw from 1901 and 1912 and, you know, various years, those were the forms of lawful money in that era that were issued by our Congress at those times. Yeah. Uh, during Lincoln's presidency, it was greenbacks. I up remember until, that term. Yes. Up until the Civil War, we did not even have any paper money. It was all gold and silver coin. And so, it, you know, it, it evolves over time. But lawful money is a term that describes the money issued by our Congress. So what I found is that in the United States codes, Title 12, which refers to banking law, Title 12, subsection 411, anyone can go look this up very easily. It says, it, well, it talks about Federal Reserve notes, how they're issued, they're issued by the Board of uh, Federal Reserve Governors, and that they may be redeemed in lawful money at the United States Treasury or at any Federal Reserve Bank. So it's telling us we have this ability to exchange Federal Reserve money into something else called lawful money. This does not mean that Federal Reserve notes are not legal. They absolutely are legal tender and they are the default and dominant currency for the nation. Correct. Yes. So the way that this works is how you deposit your money. Let's say you receive income and you want to deposit it into your bank account. The way that you make that deposit is what is the pivot point between using the Federal Reserve note and the United States note. And it has to do with how you endorse uh, the instrument. If it's a check, a cashier's check, a money order. Yeah. Now, in this modern era, most of the money is moving around electronically through direct deposit if you're a W-2 employee, um, through ACH transfers if you um, buy or purchase things via credit cards or if you earn money from credit card sales, uh, that sort of thing. And there are ways to do a similar form of documentation on these electronic movements of money as well as a, a traditional check. Yeah. So that when you do that and you keep a record of what you have done, you have begun making your new income exempt from income taxation at that point. Yeah, you mentioned these United States notes. So my question is, I know there at least as far as I'm able to tell, they're no longer actually being printed. Actual printing of them ceased a long time ago. Yes. Can you just go to a bank and ask for them? I mean, uh, like for example, I may be incorrect on this, but I believe that the last printing of a United States note was in 1966 and it was a $100 bill. Uh, my, the, the information I found at the United States Treasury website states that they have they were stopped being issued into circulation in 1971. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, series 1966, and usually a series goes for a few years after it begins. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah 1971 sounds about right, because that's right about when Nixon took us off the gold standard. Yeah. 
clean clean on checkers, but then he took us off the gold standard. Yes. Well, I'll get back to the gold standard a little bit. So, okay. So the United States notes, they have a, um, in Title 31 of the United States Code, subsection 5115, talks about United States notes. And it explains that there are no more than 300 million of them in circulation, which is very few. I mean, that's yeah. a dollar for every man, woman, and child that makes up the population of the country. Not a lot of money. When you th I mean, it just in raw terms, because we have, yeah. I think the estimate that they believe is going to turn out in the 2020 census is that we're going to have something like 335 million actual citizens, I mm -hmm. think is the number they're projecting, something like that. Yeah, something like that. That's what I'm hearing, rough, rough estimates. Yeah. So now, so now sometimes he'll get, so, well, 300 million, that's not enough. It's, it's okay. We don't have to worry about that because the Treasury told us that the Federal Reserve note serves this, the purpose of both currencies equally. And so there is no longer a need to physically, literally print out United States notes. So that means that we can redeem every last Federal Reserve note that we want to for those that elect to do such a thing. Right. So, you know, it's not like there's a shortage of them or we have to worry about it. And I, uh -huh. I would not recommend going to any bank and asking for them because they cannot accommodate your request and it is an unnecessary request. I see. Because that was, that was the next question. I wanted to let you say what you had to say is that just like I can go to my bank and I can request $2 bills and some of them will have them, some of them won't, and some of them will say, what's a $2 bill, believe it or not. I'm thinking, if I if, if it's a crapshoot to even get some $2 bills to, to spend, uh, I can imagine going and getting a United States note uh, that went out of circulation 50 years ago, or right. stopped being printed 50 years ago, uh, that there's only somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 to $300 million worth of them Anyway, I don't think banks stock up on United States notes. No, no, they don't. And it's just, you're better off just, it's unnecessary. Yeah. The Federal Reserve note can stand as either currency as long as you document which one you are utilizing. Right, okay. Okay, so now the IRS was created in the same year as, as the Federal Reserve Act was passed. 1913. 1913. That is not a coincidence. And the reason for that is because the IRS is actually the debt collection arm for the Federal Reserve. And since Federal Reserve notes create an obligation on the U.S. government to pay it back, the IRS collects the income tax, which is like a use tax for the, quote, privilege of using Federal Reserve notes. And because wow. Federal Reserve notes are redeemable, it means the use of Federal Reserve notes is voluntary. And this is what people do not understand because they don't see or hear anything about any other form of currency other than historical, uh, you know, notes. So, yeah. yeah, so the voluntary nature of the Federal Reserve note 
is what leads to the voluntary nature of paying the income tax. Sometimes that phraseology is bandied around by politicians and congressmen. And say, oh, yes, the IRS. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your politicians, your congresspeople that want to show their populist credentials and throw things out like the income tax is voluntary and then right. somebody actually tries it and it's like instant audit and right. then you and then you have the people that sell the uh you know sell the how to foul your screw you uncle sam tax return and then that's like that's like saying that's like writing the irs irs a polite letter and saying would you please audit me well you know the vitriol while it's understandable it absolutely backfires and just because something is voluntary you have to know exactly what you did to volunteer in and you must know correctly how to volunteer out yeah i wouldn't do this on my own without help no you cannot just willy-nilly because once you are in the system you actually have a contractual obligation with the irs so yeah. So once yes. you start, so what you're saying is once you start paying your voluntary taxes to the IRS by paying the taxes in the first place, you have now entered a contractual obligation that you will abide by the IRS's regulations and pay your taxes every quarter and every year. Is that right. what I heard? Yes. That's yeah. Correct. So that, so at that point, while it's still maybe air quotes voluntary, You've agreed to do it, so now it's kind of a lot less voluntary than it used to be. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. That I want our listeners to hear that because if you're listening to crankpot theories that you can just uh, file a, a 1040 and write, screw you, Uncle Sam, signed John Q. Public on it and think that you're just going to get away with it, yeah, you're going to get audited for a stunt like that. So what Kelly's revealing to you here is what underlies that and why you can't just do that. Right. Right. I mean, you know, if you were the Federal Reserve, you know, not that I'm a fan of them, obviously, but they got the upper hand and so you have to know what you're doing. And yeah. so that's why after I uncovered this, um, I started applying this method to my own tax situation in 2014. And every year since then, I have received 100% of my withholdings uh, returned to me and incurred no income tax liability for my business activities. Wow, that, I mean, I have a very skilled CPA and tax advisor, as I've said, who is very good at minimizing my tax liabilities, making sure that we're fully compliant with all federal, right. federal state, and local obligations. In fact, uh, my CPA and tax advisor, uh, is doing their job as long as they do three basic things. Make sure that we're in full compliance with all relevant federal, state, and local taxation, blah, 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 blah. Right. Point number two, do is the bare minimum of it that we absolutely have to because that money is more valuable with me reinvesting it to, into the business and into myself, which puts into the economy, which creates jobs. And right. point number three is don't make me have to understand it. I was no good in math. Explain to me in a way that I know what I'm signing, but don't expect me to do calculus. And he is admirable at all three of those things. That's great. And, you know, yeah. CPAs, they're for the most part, they are very educated, smart people that, by and large, do a great job for their clients. Yes. And they are experts in the tax code. 
like I said, they haven't mastered the whole thing because that's really undoable. But, you know, for you working with people in the system, hey, I, my hats go off to them. They are not trained in banking law, however. And so CPAs do not understand the correlation between our banking system and the income tax system. So your CPA will not know about this or be trained in it or understand it and having a conversation about it unless it's a friendship relationship. Yeah. It's mostly moot, pointless. And I've had some people had their CPA scare the bejesus out of them for, for considering doing something that is unorthodox, put it that way. I, I, I understand. I myself um, understand that the laws are there for a reason. And I have agreed with sentiments expressed by certain politicians when questioned about their, their tax paying practices of the past have said, look, I used the laws that were on the books. I did this according to the law that is in place, duly passed by Congress. If folks don't like it, get into Congress and change the law and I'll obey whatever law you pass. Yes. To me, that's a fair statement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So anyway, so getting back to the, the concept of utilizing this other currency making your income exempt, you know, documenting it along the way. The process itself is actually very simple. It doesn't involve a lot of paperwork and forms to fill out and hoops to jump through. And it, it begins to free you of the need to look for every last um, deduction that's available. You know, the 1031 yeah. exchanges for real estate investors and depreciation analysis for business owners and you know all of these these things that come with timelines and restrictions and you know you got to do this and you got to do that to qualify all of that starts to melt away after your first full year of redeeming your federal reserve money for united states notes so the the tax return gets much more simplified uh, the need to document all of your expenses and deductions goes away. Um, and, okay, so what I haven't shared yet that's really, really fantastic about this method also, when you redeem Federal Reserve notes for United States notes, what happens is the Federal Reserve has to surrender an equivalent amount of United States bonds, which are basically IOUs that it holds as collateral against the national debt, it has to uh, surrender those back to the US Treasury. So let's say over the course of a year, someone redeems $100,000 of new income to United States notes. What they have done is lowered the US national debt by $100,000. Now that's a pinprick, not even compared to our 23 trillion or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't we spend, I, I mean, again, I was never any good at math, but don't we spend something like, uh, like $100,000 or add $100,000 in debt every like 
I don't know, 12 minutes or something. I know I'm being uh, uh, a little bit facetious here because I don't well, even I was say know how to do seconds. math. But yeah, but I know it, it doesn't take long for us to blow through 100 grand. Right, right. So, so that this is not only good for us as individuals to retain the money that we earn so that we can continue to um, assist the economy in growing, we are helping the government lower the national debt also simultaneously. It's, yeah. a, it's a beautiful win-win. Well, I can, I can work with a win-win. So I do have a couple questions here. Um, first, okay, first of all, I just want to make absolutely certain, when we talk about redeeming United States notes or this thing that you're educating us to do, does that mean we do it through a bank? Because I'm just trying to picture myself going to Subway and ordering a 12-inch veggie sub and using a United States note for that. I just don't see it happening for some reason. Okay, so let me clarify. The, the point where the redemption occurs is when you deposit new income or new money into your bank account, whether it's through an endorsement on a check or through a direct deposit authorization that you provide to your employer or whoever else it applies to. Um, when you make purchases, you are spending money, either cash or money from your bank account, that money is already redeemed when you go to the subway to buy a sandwich. Yeah. It's when the money enters your account is where the rubber meets the road. Right. I see. I yeah. see. So, yeah. So, yeah. So we're not, so we're not like going and buying a sandwich with this money. It's a matter of redeeming the money and exchanging it. Right. And then, okay. and then even though, even though you've redeemed it, you're still going to pull Federal Reserve notes out of your wallet if you're paying cash. And you're still gonna, you know, now let's say you write a check to someone, you know, for some service and they go deposit it. If they don't know about this, they're going to redeposit that money as a Federal Reserve currency. And that's their business and that's their bank account and you no longer care because it's, as long as you take care of your end and your bank account and your banking activity, that's what matters for you and your tax return. I see. All right. So another question that comes up here is since we're talking about how this impacts the national debt and how it changes uh, taxation responsibilities and we dealt with some of the facts underlying the fun marketing cliche about the voluntary nature of paying income tax. All that aside and referencing back to all that, is it unfair for me to not pay my quote unquote fair share of taxes? And if everybody were to do this, how would the government pay for things? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, from my point of view, this is a huge point of conditioning and indoctrination that we are uh, fed you know, by the society at large, whether it's the media, the educational system, the financial services industry, uh, the government. I mean, all of these things have this mantra about paying your fair share. So let me explain something. Back in 1984, when Reagan was in office, he initiated uh, this commission to do research. It was called the Grace Commission on what actually happens to the money collected by the government. 
it was a very extensive report and it showed that the money collected by IRS goes to the Federal Reserve and it's, it's to service the interest on the national debt. It is not going to pay for what we think are the government services that it provides to the citizens. You know, we think about infrastructure and building roads and schools and all of those things. The truth is property taxes are what pay for the schools, the fire departments, the police departments, the local roads, and all the, you know, the functionality that we rely on as citizens. Right. Income taxes are owed to the Federal Reserve to cover the national debt. And all the IRS taxes collected, all they do is chip away at the interest. It rarely ever uh, brings the principal amount of the national debt down. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is something that really is a fairly complex thing and it does take some time for somebody to understand it. And I think that's partially because the use of mass media and prevalent conversation has been utilized to give us all this impression you know, give us all this impression that there's one right way of doing things. And if you don't do it, you're a tax cheat. No, not right. Right. Because as you said, it's a code. It's not necessarily a law. And, and, and that's a very key uh, semantic distinction because codes can be interpreted in ways that laws perhaps cannot. Well, I don't want to say that they're not laws. I mean, oh, okay. You know, they're, they're, so, so, they're, so help me understand this better. Okay, so when I say code, I mean kind of like a detective where something is encoded or written in such a way that it needs to be deciphered in order to understand it. It's, it's a tricky language. It's, um, it's coded in the sense that uh, the actual meaning is somewhat camouflaged. Yeah. I that, that I think that's what I was actually trying to say, but I wasn't using okay. the best language to describe it. So, yeah, again, I think your use of the word camouflage kind of actually says better. What I was trying to say is that it's not immediately obvious, uh, depending on how you read it. Right, right. Yeah. So. Sure. All right. So, question I have also is, can anyone benefit from this strategy? All right, so I will only work with people that are legally here in the United States. That's okay. number one. Other than that, this method is available to, you know, to exercise the banking law. Okay, so people that I work with typically are paying at least, you know, five to ten thousand dollars a year in taxes to the federal government. And then in some cases they pay extra to their state for state income tax as well. Um, yeah. So people that are paying, you know, at least 5,000 and above are most likely to benefit from, from this remedy. Although anyone at any income level, if they understood it, could 
uh, could apply it to their situation. Yeah. All right. That that's that sounds good. Is there is there more that we need to qualify? Um, no, I just want to explain a couple of things about people that are W two employees. They are the least um, tax favored in the tax code. They have the least um, amount or, or the least access to many of the other deductions and exemptions that are available to businesses and um, self-employed people and, and right. that type of thing. So people that have really high W-2 incomes uh, would benefit from this greatly. I work with some nurses and doctors and people in those fields. Um, and just to be clear, on a paycheck, you know, there's federal withholding, there might be state withholding, there's uh, Medicare withholding, there's Social Security yeah. insurance. This applies to federal and state income tax only. So you would still um, have Medicare and Social Security insurance and those things. Those are, you know, viable taxes that this does not address. I see. So we're still paying into Social Security and things like that, regardless of right. our participation in the Federal Reserve or however you want to look at that. Right. Yeah. And then when people, you know, learn, or if people want to work with me, it starts from the present going forward. It is not retroactive. Um, so let's say someone starts mid-year, say June their income will be taxable from January 1st of that year to say June 1st. <clears throat> and then their new income from June 1st for the balance of the year would become exempt. And so that first year in that particular scenario would involve a tax return that is a combination of the traditional way and the new way. And so I work with people on making sure that tax return is properly prepared. Um, I just had a thought and it flew away. It'll come back. Yeah, it'll come back. <laughs> um, and then, you know, some people that I work with, uh, especially in higher tax brackets, sometimes they just want to be a little bit more strategic about how they apply this exemption. And I can work with people on that as well. Uh, there's a comfort level with changing to something that's as different as this is from, you know, the, the classic way of submitting a 1040. Um, so, you know, the, you know, it's more, there's actually more to unlearn and shed in this process than there is new stuff to learn. Uh, but it can be done you know, more strategically, as if it, it can be treated like another tax deduction along with several others. For people that have business entities like an S Corp or a C Corporation, uh, I would still recommend that they work with their CPA or whoever does those entity returns in the same way that they have been. And then whatever income flows from their business to them as the individual, whether it's they're an employee of their own company or they receive shareholder distributions through the K-1 filings, 
those that income would flow down to the person's 1040 and it's uh, the 1040 that I work with people on how to teaching them how to prepare it correctly. Okay, yeah, and I I think it's helpful that you distinguish that this has various levels of relevance or applicability depending on whether they're a 1040 filer or they have a, a corporation or an LLC or they do a 1099 or whatever it is because all of those levels have have different levels of uh, you know applicability when it comes to certain tax codes. When I first started my business and it was uh, simply just me doing freelance work, the first thing I did was form a limited liability company to wrap around it. The second thing I did was to file for a tax ID or an EIN number. And the third thing I did was hire a CPA and a tax advisor. Those are the first three things I did. Mm -hmm. And I told people in networking groups that I was doing all this. And here is a response I got from people more than once. Well, my friend who's a lawyer told me that I should just do uh, file as a sole proprietor. I, wow. I I had been in it for two minutes, and I already knew that uh, there were several holes in that. Number one, maybe it's different with your system. I don't think it is, but you'll correct me on this in a second if I'm wrong. But I don't think there's th anything much worse than you can be than being a sole proprietor in terms of taxation liability. And number two, their friend who's a lawyer, well, I didn't hear the part where it was their lawyer. They were paying money for official advice. Yeah. Okay. So if someone elects to do this um, tax strategy that I'm speaking about today, then the, the formation of their business, whether it's sole proprietor, self-employed, entity owner, really is irrelevant from a tax point of view. Okay. Where, where those distinctions come into play is when it, when the business and the person is seeking asset uh, protection or limited liability, you know, out in the business world for, you know, litigation and, you know, that type of thing. So asset protection is always important, especially when you have assets to protect. Correct. Uh, so that's where sole proprietor, you're a sitting duck as a sole proprietor in terms of exposure of your assets. So I don't, yeah, I wouldn't give that um, attorney much credence, but I would have to, know, <laughs> I'd have to know the context of where he was coming from. I mean, I don't want to automatically dismiss it. Um, it just depends on that individual, but it sounds like they were just giving generic advice. And I don't think that's ever a sound way to go. Everybody's situation is unique and individual and should be treated as such. Sure, sure. I wanted to raise that point just so that our listeners could hear the importance of doing due diligence and understanding what is being told to them. And I tell that story so often using the phrase, my friend who's a lawyer. Uh. Well, what, well, what, really? Well, was your friend a lawyer who deals with incorporating small businesses? Is there a friend a, a lawyer 
somebody who's been disbarred for impropriety? What does that mean, my friend who's a lawyer? It means nothing. If I want legal advice, I'm going to pay my lawyer. Uh, just like if somebody wants advice on the great American tax remedy, they should probably consider working with you. So we're actually at the top of the hour here. I know we could keep going for days on this, but I imagine at this point we have at least a few people who are really leaning into this, getting real curious at least to see where this could possibly go and could it be something to be a benefit to them. So you got the floor for one minute. How does somebody get a hold of you and what do they have to look forward to? All right. So I have a, an introductory report um, to offer at my website, which is www.mytaxremedy.com. And that is a great way to get in touch with me. Also, you can email me <clears throat> at info at mytaxremedy.com. Those are the two best ways to get in touch with me. And uh, once, once you take either one of those steps, then I'd be happy to dialogue with you on the phone to find out your situation, uh, what your unique uh, circumstances are, and help you determine if and when this is a good option for your situation. Absolutely. I, yeah. I encourage yeah. people to verify everything that I tell them. I really am not looking to create, you know, a stable of sheep to just follow what I tell them. I want people to be empowered. It is the reason I started this, this, uh, this business, the Great American Tax Remedy. I want you to be empowered. I want you to understand that you have so much more power and leverage than you will ever, ever, ever be taught in our society. And, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's why I made the interjections that I've made throughout yeah. our conversation here today is because I want people to understand that it is up to the end user ultimately decide what's best for them and you come into this conversation as a resource to show them another way and to help them make some bifurcations between facts that are facts versus a truth that may not be their own truth it may be somebody else's truth they're looking that the that they're seeking to have imposed upon them or to uh involuntarily have imposed upon them as the case may be but the point being is to understand that difference between facts and truth you bring facts and it's up to the individual user to decide what their truth is so with that being said it is certainly worth it for them to visit mytaxremedy.com as they may see a different point of view absolutely it's always good to start learning especially things that you have not been familiar with before there is no harm in that there was no obligation. It just helps um, pull back, you know, a, a veil, a curtain of, of camouflage into another possibility. And that's what I encourage strongly. All right. Okay. So uh, Kelly Alexander, founder of the Great American Tax Remedy. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor and believe me, an education. Great. Thank you, Adam. It's been a delight to be here and to share with your audience. Okay. And for everybody listening, we trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. 
While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.